Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So let me quickly tell two stories. The first story is very short, which is that, as many of you know, I'm teaching every spring. I teach a course in the political science department at Yale, and it's about political journalism. But one of my students is always bringing up all kinds of wide-ranging things. And at one point she said, or maybe wrote to me, that she'd read this essay about something called brokenism. Uh, the notion that you should at least put on the table the idea that various institutions and aspects of society are broken, and if so, if they're really broken, maybe you have to get rid of them. And so after that, I couldn't stop thinking about that. And everything, <laughs> I read the two pieces that are relevant to it. They are written by our guest today, Alana Newhouse, editor in chief uh, of Tablet Magazine, which she founded in 2009. <laughs> And then I couldn't, everything sort of ran through that prism after this. So, Alana, I'm going to quickly tell a story and have you react to it. So, uh, in March, um, I discovered that someone had stolen a check that I had written out of a United States Postal Service mailbox. One of the mailboxes sitting right outside the post office. And the fraud department at my bank had found it on a dark site. I guess they, the stealers sell it to check washers or something. And so they had quickly frozen my bank account, which is like a thing I'm still trying to unravel. I mean, my bank, I got a bank account again, but it was bad things happen. Anyway, I mentioned this on Facebook and I mentioned it in passing conversation. And a lot of people's reaction was, well, why do you even use the Postal Service? I mean, I pay everything online. I do everything online. Checks are just over, and the Postal Service is over, and only old people do those things. And I thought, this is kind of a brokenest argument. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not entirely sure I agree with this, although mustering a rhetorical defense is going to be a little bit complicated. But so, Alana, maybe begin here before we sort of, we'll get into the, the brokenism as an abstract uh, concept, but let's begin in a concrete world. What, what do you make of a situation like that? Well, unbelievably, the exact same thing happened to me in December. <laughs> so I'm not even sure what to make of it because I'm stunned at the coincidence here, although maybe that's actually where to start, yeah. right? Because it turns out when I looked into it a little bit, I live in New York City, and it turns out the Upper West Side is experiencing, I don't live on the Upper West Side, I live in Brooklyn, but um, the Upper West Side has apparently become a hotbed of fraudulent check washers. And as a result, people all over the city are having checks stolen from different mailboxes, which then get brought up to be washed. And then eventually everyone's getting their bank accounts frozen. Whatever it means about the systems of banking or the systems of how things operate in the country, I'll tell you for sure that it gives people a sense that 
not just the postal service, but also lots of other institutions aren't working the way that they used to. Yeah, and I would go so far as to say, in my case, uh, this happened in West Hartford, Connecticut, which is the Upper West Side of Connecticut. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it seemed as though these mailboxes have been hit a whole bunch of times. Uh, yep. And the, I mean, this didn't just happen once, and it sounds like it didn't happen once in, in Manhattan either. It, it happened again and again and again. So you're sort of thinking, well, first of all, it seems like it might be kind of an inside job. I've since learned a lot more about this. But also, like, why isn't anybody fixing it? I mean, this conversation is going to boil down to you as a brokenist and me as a mechanic, but but <laughs> I, I don't like the term status quo. We'll get to that. But maybe just could you just apply the brokenest lens to this and say, okay, so as somebody who basically does ask the question, is this institution worth saving? How do you make an evaluation here? I want to clarify that I am a brokenist because I think it's a useful starting place. Mm-hmm. And I actually believe that you're a mechanic or status quoist or reformist, whatever term you like, also as a starting place. Yeah. What I mean by that is, is I can be convinced easily in some senses, if I'm talking to somebody with real knowledge, that a certain institution is in fact functioning very well, or maybe functioning with problems, but is completely salvageable. I just want it to be okay to almost by default not assume that and come at it from a place of it's a little bit of the the worst way of thinking about it is is kind of a what have you done for me lately (laughs) attitude toward our institutions whereas you it seems like or maybe what you feel is is that you want the assumption in some of these conversations to be that institutions are salvageable until proven otherwise. Yeah, I think uh, this is it is. It's a burden of proof question, right? That you yes. you might say the burden of proof is on the institution to prove it is salvageable, it can work. I might start, I might default to the other possibility. I'd like to think that the I'd like to believe and I'd like to begin by thinking that the US Postal Service is a vital tenet of society, part of an ecosystem that constitutes a society. So I'm not going to start with the idea it needs to prove it shouldn't die. I want to say if I can, I think that the example of um, your check washing is a, a really good one because it gets at how just how complicated asking this question is, but also how generative and potentially different it is to talk about institutions in this way rather than keeping them in a right-left paradigm, which I think really doesn't do anything for our conversation. So in my case, and maybe in your case, but in my case, there were a number of institutions involved in the freezing of my bank account. One of them was the U.S. Postal Service, which had its own mailbox violated, right? Another one was my bank, which is not simply my bank, but is part of a large banking system. And the third, in my case, was the police. And I have to say that in my specific case, I found if I had to assess it, I would say that I found I felt bad for the Postal Service because they seemed either under-resourced or in some way incapable of protecting their property now. And I think that's simply the case. And I think you probably somewhat what you heard too. I also felt that my bank's hands were tied in that there were federal laws that prevented them from being able to 
act uh, or help a customer who, in my case, had been a customer for a long time, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter who I was. I could have been anyone. They had to apply the exact same rules to me, which lends people a sense that, for example, like the death of the local bank, the death of a sense of, you know, knowing anyone or knowing their family or understanding that people go through something and maybe in a tight spot, there's no more human touch to a lot of our, certainly our financial institutions. And in the third case, there was the police, which I actually felt in my case had handled everything, seemed quite capable and constantly kept in touch with me. Um, so if I had to look at that, I would assess those three institutions and say, okay, different, e- each of them felt like they had different challenges and different opportunities. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I could just, qu- Lily Tyson wants me to get to the point of this whole conversation, but just stay with this for a second. Yeah. I hear certain elements in there and there are elements that I by and large agree with, although I put sort of slightly different glosses on them. One story that I was told as I investigated this whole thing was that part of the problem for the Postal Service was they went through a period of labor shortage, like an awful lot of other places. Yeah. Uh, and so they were hiring people kind of quickly without drug testing and background checks and stuff like that. So then you want up maybe with somebody who will either, I was told in some cases, rent out a key to the mailbox to somebody, some nefarious character for five hours and get it back to me by X amount of time. So there's another problem. There's another broken problem. You know, obviously having the unemployment rate drop and employment opportunities increase creates another potential brokenest scenario. The other thing that I heard here, I want you to respond to both of these, is I'm sort of on a humanism kick these days and a very broadly construed humanism kick. You had a better experience with the police because you were dealing with human beings. And I have a good experience with the Postal Service because I know my mail carrier, Sherry, really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, And I think, and we're going to get to the medical system, which is kind of what got you going down this road. The more things get automated, the more things yeah. get automatically deducted from our bank accounts with no conversation with anybody, the more that we take the human element out of things, I think the faster we're hurtling towards the kind of scenario that makes you think in brokenest terms. Yes, I think that that's entirely correct. And I think that the distance between our institutions and the human beings that they're meant to serve is what's giving off the sense that they're broken. Yeah. So tell a little bit more of the story of how you got here. You've written about this. And this really does, in fact, begin with the birth of a child uh, and some significant medical problems that took a long time to address. So I, a few years ago, I wrote a piece about my own journey to try to find a diagnosis for my son. And I, um, my husband and I are both the children of doctors. We live in New York City. We have access to the best medical care. And we went on a wild goose chase to try to figure out what was wrong with our son. And it really did feel like we couldn't, no matter how much we demanded, we couldn't actually get human attention. And I wrote a piece about, as I was going through that experience and obviously um, running tablet and having conversations with people then throughout COVID about how American society was feeling to them it occurred to me that actually the experience that I had had, sort of maddening experience with a set of interlocking faceless institutions was mirrored by a lot of other people in their own lives. And that actually it was a result of 
a large scale deterioration and decay in the institutions that around which American society are centered. And so I wrote an essay titled Everything is Broken about feeling that and also about my theories about why it happened and then a sense of what I think we can do from here. That essay got a lot of attention and I received thousands of notes in response. And I, because I'm a reporter and I like talking to people, one of the things I did was I wrote to nearly everyone who wrote in a note to me and I asked if they would Zoom with me and talk to me about their reaction to the story. And so I, I did a, many, many Zooms with readers of that piece. And one of them was with a man named Ryan who actually became a friend. Um, and Ryan is a third generation African-American veteran living in Ohio, same age as me. Turns out we have a lot in common. And over the course of years, Ryan and I would text and chat about politics and about society. And one day Ryan said to me, you know, I don't know what I am anymore. I don't think I can identify as a Republican or a Democrat. I don't even know what it is to be a liberal or a conservative anymore. All I know is that what I believe in is the fundamental premise of your piece, which is that the institutions that I interact with are broken. And my conversations with people and my fights with people all break down on those lines. And I realized that he was right. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a second piece, which is the piece that I titled Brokenism, which basically made that argument that that's the way to understand the debates happening around American society right now is that it's about whether or not our institutions are salvageable or not. It's not a fight about between the right and the left. Right. No, it, it doesn't break down along left-right lines. I'll give you an example, uh, I think, uh, of that might sort of speak to that. So for 16 years, I worked at a commercial radio station owned by CBS. And for all of those 16 years, I am either immediately preceded or immediately followed the Rush Limbaugh show. And one thing that Limbaugh would say, apropos of your experience, like any time healthcare came up, he would say, we have the greatest healthcare system in the world. And I would think, I would say, says who? You know, This is before I read Elizabeth Rosenthal's American Sickness. But I basically knew what I was going to find in her book. It's the greatest book about this but that I've ever read anyway. But, I mean, that I think speaks to you. I mean, that's meant to end the conversation, right? I, we've had an experience during COVID where, very similar to your own experience with your, with your child, where, you know, we had doctors issuing ZPAC antibiotic prescriptions for COVID. COVID's a virus. Antibiotics don't work against it. <laughs> or they would prescribe steroids in the first week, which is a really dangerous, bad thing to do. Steroids are very appropriate, kind of in the, the second phase of COVID. I mean, thing after thing after thing. These are doctors, and they didn't seem to know how to treat what was the most famous disease at the moment, one in which, yes, it was an ever-changing scenario, but the briefings were pretty hard to miss if you were a doctor. So I feel your pain about it taking three years to figure out what was going on with your kid. Yeah. And it turns out that, you know, I, in a way, I would have loved to have written an essay about what happened with my own son and what I thought about the world. And for six people to have read it, nobody to have responded mm -hmm. because it would have meant that the problem was specifically mine. And that, you know, what can you do? Stuff like that happens. But the fact that it had such a there was such a viral reaction to it 
with most people saying, yes, I have had some version of this experience is probably a bad sign. It is. And and, and I, in that sense, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think defaulting to sort of say the limbo opposition about something like that, I'm not willing to consider reform because we have the greatest healthcare system in the world is a way of cutting off an incredibly necessary debate. So to, to that extent, I'm a brokenist and or a brokenista. There are other ways I think in which you and I differ about that. I'm talking to Alana Newhouse right now, by the way, editor-in-chief of Tablet, which she founded. Uh, we're going to take a very quick break here. We're going to come back. We have so much more to say. your love, live your life each and every day, and keep your hand wide open, let sun shine through, cause you can never lose a thing if it belongs Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All things must pass. I'm talking to Alana Newhouse. Not all things must pass, according to, I think, her way of thinking. You should just be prepared to consider the possibility that anything you're looking at could be more uh, more ephemeral uh, <laughs> and less permanent than you maybe had previously imagined. I think, Alana, that's a good way to continue our conversation anyway about so-called brokenism, right? This, uh, yep. just like, let's have that conversation about everything. 
So I think the difficulty is that, you know, the things for me, I, I want you to react to this. For me, the things that I am the most brokenest about are the things that I also see as being the most intractable. They're sort of, they're sort of like these kind of, you know, imperial death stars that have their own defense system. The, the thing that I'm the most brokenest about probably is the U.S. Constitution. I think it's, it doesn't work. It has contributed to insane numbers of structural problems in our society. And one of the things that currently and perhaps permanently doesn't work about it now is you can't amend it anymore. The, the plan was <laughs> when it didn't right. work, we would amend it. That can't happen anymore. Other countries have had two or three constitutions in the time that we've had our one. I'm totally ready to tear that up. Uh, and startle. I'd love to build a new constitution that wasn't written by 55 white men who were drunk. But how do you do that? I mean, it seems to me that some of the things that we would really love to have that conversation about are pretty intractable. I think that the thing that um, the thing that feels useful to me about the philosophical framing is that you can apply it anywhere. And so, if legal scholars wanted to apply it to the constitution, they can, um, or anyone, frankly. I personally, what I feel drawn to is I really like looking at institutions that currently serve or are meant to serve human beings directly in their daily lives in a kind of urgent and immediate way. And so I I think a lot about institutions of healthcare, public policy, schooling, and, uh, and other culture-making to try to look at it and say, what feels like it's not working here? But you can apply that, you can apply that framework to almost anything. You're right that certain things feel intractable. I would say that some of the things that feel intractable feel that way because they are quite abstract. And they may feel that way because they are uh rooted in and because people feel so connected to them or allied against them that they it's impossible to have the conversation. But it also may be because it's not that practical. Like for me right now, I think about something like the opioid epidemic in America or um, healthcare. And I don't know, personally, I care a lot more about that right now. And I think it's an emergency. I also think Interestingly, that it's probably easier to fix our opioid epidemic than it is to deal with our constitution. Oh, it, anything's easier than fixing our constitution. So, but say more about that. And and I assume that part of fixing the opioid epidemic or addressing it is throwing out some of the bathwater around it without throwing out the baby, whatever that is. So, but maybe you could say a little bit more about that. How would you apply your model to? you know, the, to fentanyl or opioids in general? Well, I think I might first start by looking at the enmeshment of the federal government with pharmaceutical companies and the ways in which opioids were legally allowed to uh, become incredibly popular and be overprescribed, which then in turn generates and leads to a black market. And so then you look and you say, well, I have a federal government that is responsible to citizens. What role did that federal government play? What was what did it allow? And in some cases, maybe even um, advertently or inadvertently encourage pharmaceutical companies to do. And then you try to demand changes of the government. That's one way of approaching it. It certainly seems like the obvious first 
step. Although I would also say that I think a more classically, if there's such a thing, brokenness argument is, okay, so end the war on drugs, stop making it about interdiction. And, you know, one of the things we're seeing in that sphere in some states is the development of kind of injection centers, that there are places where if you're an addict, if you've got an opioid problem, one thing you can do is you can go to a place where you can safely and without compunction use whatever it is that you're using with like, I don't know, nurses and, you know, blood pressure cuffs or whatever the hell they They've got there. And that is a radical departure from arresting junkies. Right, so, but don't you want to know why? Don't, don't you want to know why that happened? Oh, and, yeah. And, and why and who's benefiting from that? And why do we have a government that has an ostensible war on drugs, but with one hand, but with the other is encouraging and and spiking pharmaceutical profits and benefits to large pharmaceutical corporations for putting these drugs on the market in legal ways. Yeah. And I feel like we're having that conversation to a certain degree. And we all know about the Sackler family and all this kind of stuff. I wouldn't say that one was the enemy of the other, but the conversation you're describing is a pretty long range conversation that is structural. And you're absolutely correct. It requires questioning the way a lot of things are done, including the way money enters the political sphere and the way moneyed lobbyists have way more power than people, all those kinds of things. Short term, I would like you know fewer people to be dying on the street from fentanyl. So you know, I, maybe I'd be willing to try those centers. Right. These are choices that you can make and individual towns can make. That's why we have local government. Other towns that may either have different principles or different experiences might make decisions and say, our experiences is that those centers are encouraging um, and making the problem worse. Yeah, it could and be. So we are at a local level going to make a decision that we won't allow that. And then that's where you get a real lab and a real sense of experimentation. Some towns will do, some jurisdictions will do it one way and some jurisdictions will do it another. That's one of the things that I thought and think can be potentially exciting about America as a nation still of incredible geographical and population diversity. We can try different things, or we used to be able to. Um, and I'd like to see us try different things in all areas because it feels like a moment when we might want to have more options. So let's talk a little bit about civic institutions, particularly because this is public radio. Let's talk about symphony orchestras. All right. So I've actually worked with one symphony orchestra. I don't do it anymore, but I was really working hard for quite a number of years because symphony orchestras are, except for the absolute elite ones, you know, uh, the L.A. under Dudamel or something, except except for those, they're always on life support. The audience is graying, aging, the format feels a little stale. On the other hand, if you put some Philip Glass pieces in there, the old people don't want to hear that. Experimentation is punished by its core audience. Lack of experimentation means you can't get a different audience. These institutions are just being kept alive by, I think, trickles of money from donors and stuff like that. So how would you, on the other hand, I think you and I could both agree that symphony orchestras are kind of good to have as civic institutions. Uh, and we know from Emily St. John Mandel, if there's a pandemic that wipes out 99% of people, they'll be traveling in the country on horseback doing Shakespeare and playing symphonic music. So I don't know. Uh, react to all that. Maybe let them. 
maybe let that happen, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe at some point you look at something and you say, in this current format, we have to wake up every day and we barely make ends meet. Some maybe something about this format for symphony orchestras doesn't work. And maybe my attachment to making it work in this particular structure is actually what's preventing it from finding new life. I would go along with that. <laughs> I mean, I, I think there's a lot of musicians who would be very nervous about that because uh, if things die, they lose their, because, they, they can't feed their jumping without it, Right, of course you're jumping without a net. Mm -hmm. And because you're saying, I would, I, I'm going to abandon this boat because it looks like it may have too many holes to actually successfully get me anywhere. And I might be better off swimming on my own, right? But that's that decision and that moment that you, where you decide this, this instrument that I've been using for stability and for safety, I may have to abandon is a very scary moment. One of the things that I definitely wanted to underscore with the piece with my the the brokenism essay was this is not I'm not looking for a burn it all down reckless attitude toward anything because it is a scary moment it is scary for those musicians to say maybe I'm going to walk into a world where I have no idea what's going to happen but that might be happening anyway and instead of using my energy toward building something new that could be lasting and truly stable, I'm holding on to something decayed and unsafe. All right. We are going to take a quick break here, and we are going to finish our conversation with Alana Newhouse on the other side of that break. We will be right back. Time to say some thank yous. The specific thank yous go to Mr. Dylan Reyes, who's back in the control booth as the technical producer of today's show. Uh, and then Lily Tyson, who is the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, is producing this episode. I should probably thank my student, Rose. We would not be here if it were not for, well, we might be here, but we would be doing something else if it were not for Rose. So thanks, Rose. All right. We're talking to Alana Newhouse. She's the editor-in-chief of Tablet Magazine, which she founded. So... Since we're talking about Tablet Magazine and about journalism, this whole idea of brokenism, things that you have to look at and say, well, if it's not functioning properly, <laughs> you know, what parts of it just need to go? Or does the whole thing need to go? Do we need to let something die and put something back in its place? This is a conversation we have about a lot of the different you know, octopus legs of, of journalism. And I know that uh, in one of your pieces, you know, the, you talked to this doctor and you told him about everything that was wrong with the healthcare system and he agreed with it. And then he said, why is so much journalism crap these days? <laughs> so I don't know, when you think about our profession, the thing we, we both do for a living, how, how does your theory, how do you apply it? What do you apply it to? It's to everything. I apply it to cable news. I apply it to public radio. I apply it to major metro newspapers. I apply it to thought leader magazines. Apply it to everything. Because the question is, is does this piece of media somehow illuminate something 
or help you navigate the world, help you understand the world better, and help you make choices about the kind of life you want to live and the kind of world you want to see? Or does it simply spike your cortisol? Well, does it yeah. simply make you outraged? Remember that it, the outrage, outrage and, and emotion are good, but they have to feel directed towards something that feels practically um, beneficial and practically useful to yourself and to others around you. And I think that different people can make different decisions about media outlets and whether or not they do that. And so it seems like, and it seems like they are, um, the rise of Substack and people getting their news from all over is an, is a testament, not just to the power of the internet and the toxicity of it and all of those things, which it, it's a testament to those two, those things also, but it is a testament to the failure of certain legacy outlets to maintain a connection to human beings and to feel like to, to be valuable to them. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to go back to the cortisol and other neurochemicals because in a way, I think, are we talking about legacy media or are we talking about what happened to leg legacy media in the form of social media? I mean, I will now form a, a, um, a, a hybrid of Scott Galloway and Ezra Klein. So, oh, God. So I know that's scary. It's like a manticore. It's like some medieval monster. Uh, but no, I mean, I think that together they would say, look, the internet uh, – turned out to be completely supported or almost supported by driven by advertising, which meant it had to be driven by engagement. So what constitutes engagement? Well, engagement in the internet sense does seem to be this monster of anxiety and anger and resentment. And I mean, these are the things that keep you on a site longer, cause you to make your own comments on that site, do all the things that the advertisers want you to do. And, and so... I, is the question, is, is the fault, is the problem at the New York Times and CBS and, and, and PR, or is it more the job of those places to somehow or other get out of the grip of this monster that's really kind of changed the nature of what we do? Mm, so I think that those, every institution is different. And part of what I try to try to underscore over and over again is that this is not a one-stop answer for every place. I do think it's a useful framework to apply to every industry and every institution, but how you come out and um, how you ask the questions and what obviously what the what answers you come up with are going to be very different. The New York Times is a very specific institution with a specific history and a specific set of people that are involved that are relevant to the decisions that got made in that company. So it's 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 hard to apply an answer across the board. That said, I will note two things, one narrow and one a little broader. You know, newspapers had made a decision before the internet came along that they were in the business of advertising. That's how they became, that's how many newspaper companies became so rich. They were not, they didn't put a primacy on subscriptions. They put a primacy on advertising. Um, and if you look at the number of staff, the staff members of newspaper companies, who were in charge of selling subscriptions compared to the staff members that were in charge of selling advertising, the advertising staff dwarfed the subscription staff. The newspaper companies made a decision that they were in the business of selling their readers to advertisers long before the internet came along. 
Now, the internet comes along and one-ups them in every way and makes it all even more toxic and even more horrible. But it's also a little rich to look at the internet and say, oh my God, none of these calculations were calculations we had any idea were ever in our business. And we had no idea that we would be beholden to advertising and all the emotions that are involved in the hostage taking that gets involved with that because they were. So that's the first thing I guess I'd say. But the broader thing I'd say is, is we've been here before. We've had fractious, toxic media before. Mm. And it susses itself out one way or another. And it would be instructive, I think, to look at, I particularly find it instructive to look at the decades right after the Industrial Revolution, because you see many of the same facts then that we're seeing now. Wholesale reassessments and in some senses, massive transformations of peace, parts of life that you would not have thought would get affected. Religion, consumer culture, tons of stuff. And the, the, the reason for it is quite simple. And this actually gets at the heart of an argument that was made to me by my favorite status quoist friend, who, after he read the first draft of my essay, said, okay, Alana, fine, but like, what's your monocausal theory here? How is it that all these institutions, which each started at different times in American history, are all decaying at the same point? How could that be? And the answer is technology. Mm. We had a technological revolution, and that revolution demanded that every institution meet it. Now, some of those institutions were developed in 1860. Some of those institutions were developed in 1972, but they all had the same challenge which is you need to come and join this new platform, these new tools, you have to adopt these new tools. And some of the institutions adopted them better than others. And so I think that's what we're really looking at. And the same is true for media. I would, I would wonder whether we could even step one step back and say in terms of a monocausal theory, that it might be human beings. Um, you know, Pogo said, we've met the enemy, he is us. You know, the internet's just really good at measuring human inclinations. It turns out they want more stories about OJ than they do about climate change. Newspapers didn't necessarily know that in a really quantifiable way going into that. You know, I mean, I always feel like the thing that we don't examine is our own complicity in stuff. You think a bunch of cops in Memphis decided to call themselves the Scorpions and run around kicking ass for no reason? No, that message came from the community. We want to be safer. We don't want our cars getting jacked. We don't want... I wonder whether part of the problem is that going back to, to Genesis, we're just fallen. And the more power we get, the more we exercise it in fairly venal ways. Tell me what you mean by fallen. Well, I mean, I think our inclinations are not good. I mean, I think we are a, a species which has been confronted with extensive information about climate change, what that means to our immediate lives and to future generations. We've decided to do nothing about that. You know, I think if you let dolphins run the planet, they'd go, wow, we, we've got to do something about this. This is no good for nobody. I, I don't, I don't see the extra empowerment that we got through technology as leading to greater impulses among the masses of humankind. A lot of really smart and principled people did great things, have done great things, will do great things with technology. But giving people extra power 
seems to have led to some pretty undesirable results. I um, I guess I couldn't disagree with you more. I don't Good. think we gave any, any power. Um, I think we um, actually overwhelmed them with enormous amounts of information in order to paralyze them. And I believe that this is a failure of leaders and a failure of our society whose job it is to create the conditions for people to be able to understand their world and act if the world needs them to. It is not the dentist's job to understand how to address climate change. The dentist can be a good citizen, but it's his job to wake up every day and fix people's teeth. And a functioning society has a, is a society in which our leaders help us, help us be our best selves. And if we are not being our best selves, it is because we have been abandoned and mistreated or underserved by our leaders and by the structures of American society. I think that's a good place to end. I mean, first of all, I completely agree. We need better leaders. We need leaders to lead us to higher ground. And unfortunately, lately, it doesn't seem like we have picked those leaders, which is another <laughs> problem. But anyway, Alana Newhouse, this is fascinating stuff. And we really encourage uh, everybody who listened to the show and was intrigued to go back to Tablet and, and read the two generative stories here. Uh, they're both uh, scrolling down in my notes to find the exact titles. You probably know the exact titles. You say them. The first essay is titled Everything is Broken, um, and the second essay is titled Brokenism. Right. So find out whether you're a brokenista or a mechanic, and feel free to uh, write to one or the other of us and tell us. But Alana Newhouse, thank you so much for your time and, and for a very thoughtful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. 